This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Paul Davies. He's a physicist and astrobiologist at Arizona State University. I spoke with him on November 8, 2005, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Sydney, Australia. This interview is included in our show, Einstein's God. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. You can handle it yes, this way perfectly yes. right, uh, as long as I keep the telephone well away from All the microphone. All right. Well, thank you so much for being flexible. Um, I... I think we probably need to give the engineers a chance to get some levels. No, they say we're just fine. Do you have All any... Right. Well, one yes. thing I, sh- I should ask you before mm-hmm. we uh, get into this, how long is the line booked for? Uh, I believe we're booked until uh, 4.30 our time, which is that 9.30 your time? I'm in oh, about an hour. That. But if we sure. could have about an hour. Do you have an hour? Uh, just okay. About, All right. Yes. Well, well, we'll take it as long as you can last. And uh, I'm, I'm really sorry that we had this delay. In fact, if we could uh, end up uh, at a quarter past uh, nine okay. my time, because I do have to do another recording uh, before my wife disappears into a meeting. All right. uh, otherwise, it's going to get put back till the end. Okay, of the I'll take that as my deadline then. <laughs> we'll we'll finish at quarter okay. past. All right. Okay, um, I guess I need to ask you. Could could you see if make sure that the engineer on on your end has begun recording? Uh, right. Um, uh, Paul, uh, sorry, was that a, a remark to me? Yes. Could you could you ask him if he's? Uh, will you be recording this this end? He, you are. Yes, he says he's recording wonderful. now, so okay. I think we're ready okay. to roll. Um, I wonder if you have any questions of me before we begin about the program, or. Uh, so, sorry, uh, uh, Paul was uh, talking to me. Just a moment. Say again. I wonder if you have any questions of me before we begin about the yes. the nature of this yeah. program or who our audience is. Uh, sorry, can, I'm talking oh, to you. Oh, right, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so, could you Do you have that? any questions of me about about this interview or, or the, our program? No, no, I always try to keep my answers as simple as possible so they can reach the widest Right, uh, I know, you're, you're good at that, at walking that line. I, um, I will tell you that I, I interviewed Freeman Dyson last week, and uh, and so good. I did actually cover some kind of basic ground with him. I don't I don't need to go back to the beginning with you. Um, okay. I would like to focus in on time, which I think you have written about so interestingly, and also because that's a subject that I think is close to people, although they may have no idea how how physicists think about it. Um, and then I'd like to All talk right. about some of the religious aspects and the mind of God, and 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 come to that a little bit later. So, okay. um, no problem. I would like to ask you though before we begin, if you could. I mean, Einstein is such a is someone who's so well-known to all kinds of people. But I'd be curious if you could recall how you first knew of him um, as a person who I'm, I'm presuming from an early age was interested in science. You know, what did you know of him? Um, how did you encounter him? What did you think of him? I first encountered Einstein and his work at the age of about 14, Uh, Of course, I had read about him, and he was a legend, uh, even within his own lifetime. I managed to track down a copy of his book, The Meaning of Relativity, in my mid-teens. I have to say it's not a very good book. Uh, There are many other ways of learning relativity, 
and uh, that one is uh, not an easy one. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I struggled through it. And then when I was about 16 or 17, I went on a lecture course, uh, not at my high school, but at uh, local technical college, uh, on the uh, theory of relativity. And I can well remember spotting an error in the uh, treatment by the <laughs> lecturer right. and discussing this with my applied mathematics master at, uh, at the high school uh, who uh, agreed with me. And so well, I felt I was beginning to get on top of the subject by the age of about This 17. was an error of the teacher or of Einstein? Oh, no, not an error of Einstein. <laughs> you weren't correcting error of the Einstein at that age. Basic one. Okay. <laughs> well, how would you answer the question simply succinctly it's a it's a vast question but but how einstein changed um our commonplace notions of reality of of people living in the time in which he made his assertions his discoveries the reason that people find Einstein's ideas weird is because we don't notice the effects that he discussed in daily huh. life and our brains have evolved their common sense notions in order to cope with daily life now Ever since the time of Isaac Newton, uh, the physicists had this notion that uh, space and time are absolute. Sometimes I say uh, that um, we think of them as an arena in which the great drama of nature is acted out. What Einstein showed is that space and time are part of the right. cast. They, uh, they themselves can change and move. And the notion that time is not absolute and universal, but is something that is malleable, that can be manipulated or changed, is profoundly weird, simply because we don't notice it in our daily lives. But we now have instruments of such extraordinary sensitivity that we can easily measure the warping of time uh, just from everyday speeds. And I suppose the one that is most dramatic is the a global positioning system, without which, uh, in Sydney at least, the taxi drivers would always get lost. <laughs> uh, this um, a system relies upon a system of uh, satellites which are orbiting the Earth, and if you don't factor in the warping effects of both motion and gravitation on time, uh, you would very soon get lost, within uh, minutes. And so uh, this is an application of the theory of relativity. But, of course, we're still talking about only nanoseconds, that's billions right. of a second, um, uh, in the distortion effect. So we, human beings so not can't perceptible notice it, but cl accurate clocks mm -hmm. can measure it. I, I think one of the most interesting uh, stories you tell, I, I, as you describe what Einstein's contribution was to our understanding of, of space, and, space and time, is that, in fact, before Newton and Galileo, um, ancient cultures thought of time as organic and subjective and cyclical and part of nature. And you, you say that, that it was, you know, that the clock is an emblem of an intellectual straitjacket that was created in a relatively modern era by scientists and that Einstein then restored time to its rightful place at the heart of nature. That's a very interesting idea. The, it's certainly true that ancient cultures, pretty much without exception, uh, thought of time... Uh, more in terms of the cycles and rhythms of nature and the notion of precision timekeeping really didn't occur to anybody until Galileo. It was Galileo who recognized that time is the appropriate parameter in which to discuss the nature of motion and in particular of falling bodies. And uh, Newton then developed that idea into what is sometimes called the clockwork universe, uh, that 
the entire cosmos is a, a gigantic clockwork mechanism, uh, slavishly following uh, accurate mathematical laws to uh, arbitrary precision, and that we can understand the processes of nature uh, greater and greater accuracy by measuring time ever more accurately. And so it was introduced into physics by Galileo and Newton as um, a means of uh, keeping track of, of bodies and of motion, but it didn't enter into the practical world nearly so much uh, until about probably the 19th uh, century, because uh, at that stage, uh, the, the railroads were being established and it was important for people to be at the station on time. Right. It was important to establish international time zones and national time zones and common uh, ways of, um, of doing business. And the telegraph was another very important step um, in establishing common time zones. Uh, so all of this came together in the 19th century. And it was curious that uh, at a, uh, probably no more than a few decades after ordinary people began to be subjected to this uh, temporal straitjacket, <laughs> uh, Einstein uh, came along and uh, upset the apple cart again. And I, I think uh, historically part of the reason for this was that he was working in the, the patent office in Switzerland and... Uh, Precision timekeeping and inventing clocks that would uh, give ever greater precision and enable uh, time zones to be synchronized was, ever more accurately the... would have been something he would deal with on right, a Right, and he basis. was in the capital of clocks as well, I guess, in Switzerland. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and so uh, I, he was obviously thinking uh, very much about uh, measuring time. And this is what led him to the notion that your time and my time uh, might appear different. We might measure different time intervals uh, between the same two events if we're moving differently. So it was a, a revolutionary idea. Uh, it didn't quite uh, restore the notion of um, the rhythmic or cyclic nature of time. For Einstein, time was still linear, uh, but it became relative. It isn't something that is absolutely imposed on the whole cosmos. It just depends on how you're moving and also your gravitational circumstances. Gra gravity slows time. Time runs a little bit faster on the roof than it does in the basement. And again, that can be measured. We don't notice it in daily life. When you go upstairs and come down again, you don't notice a mismatch. Uh, but you can measure it with uh, accurate clocks. Um, so time is not, is not an arrow. It doesn't flow in one direction. Um, but it, it even gets more... You know, there are ways in which this, this physicist's view of time, this Einstein's view of time, can seem in some ways quite mystical. I mean, Freeman Dyson said to me, uh, and I, I think this, is, this was just a description of what Einstein saw, and tell me if this is correct, that, I mean, past, present, and future are ultimately an illusion, that in fact everything is happening at the same time on some level. Is that right? Einstein wrote in a letter to the widow of his friend, mm. best friend, in fact, Michelle Besso, yes. that uh, to us who are convinced physicists, past, present, and future are only illusions, however persistent. Mm -hmm. And what he meant by that is in the theory of relativity, which we now know to be the correct description of, of the nature of time, uh, your time and my time can be different. And so uh, discussing the question of, uh, of the present becomes ambiguous, because if we ask uh, what's happening on Mars now, uh, it sounds like a meaningful question, because uh, you and I are talking and we have a common now, uh, and we think this common now can be extended right across the universe. Uh, but it turns out uh, that uh, 
the question what's happening on Mars now is ambiguous to within about 20 minutes. That is to say that we could identify any of a range of events over a 20-minute interval on Mars which could be regarded as simultaneous with this moment now uh, according to how the observer is moving. So uh, if somebody's rushing through the solar system in a, a spaceship, uh, they would regard uh, this moment now and a particular event on Mars as simultaneous, whereas somebody moving in the opposite direction in a spaceship would have a completely different uh, moment of simultaneity on Mars. And that discrepancy increases the farther away you go. So if you go right out to distant galaxies, the discrepancy uh, between these nows uh, is very easily made um, thousands of years uh, by the simple process of just getting up and walking around. Even uh, differences in, uh, as we say, reference frame, differences in movement uh, of walking pace and uh, can shift uh, the uh, what we would regard as the present moment in some distant part of the universe by thousands of years. Now, this doesn't mean uh, that you can communicate with the past or send messages uh, back in the past or visit the past because the other thing about the theory of relativity is that the speed of light uh, is an absolute speed limit, a cosmic speed limit. We can't send information faster than light. So the fact that there's this range of, of present moments or range mm -hmm. of nows in other places uh, doesn't ever lead us to be able to reverse the time order of things or to know the, the future or anything like that. So the theory hangs together consistently, but it does mean that we can't make any sense of the notion of the present moment universally throughout the universe. And so that leads us to, to conclude that the past and uh, the future must in some sense exist with equal status as the present because mm -hmm. we can't chop time up into these three things. It's just entirely a sort of personal relative uh, decomposition. There's no universal decomposition into past, present, and future. As you said when we began to speak, it's very difficult to know how to apply this or how it might be perceptible in ordinary lives. But I think I'd ask the question to you, understanding this grand view of time as you do, do you live or perceive your ordinary days any differently? No, I think uh, because daily life is not affected mm -hmm. uh, by these relativistic effects, I don't think it makes any difference to me, except uh, the knowledge that when I think of the universe, I don't think of it at one instant. Uh, to me, the word universe means its entirety. And I often talk about the timescape, as uh, similar to the landscape. We unfurl a map before us, and that's the territory, and we see it all in one sweep. Physicists extend that by one dimension and include time. And so uh, we, when we think of the universe, or some portion of the universe, we think of it as extended in space and extended in time. And we don't single out any particular instance and say, well, that's, you know, that's now, mm -hmm. uh, unless, of course, uh, we're concerned with a you know, particular experiment or if we're trying to predict an eclipse or something uh, and uh, we want to relate it to the moment at which we're, we're doing that prediction. But otherwise, it's just sort of as it were all there at once. Now, this doesn't really affect uh, everyday activity, um, it, but it might if we uh, started achieving speeds very close to that of light. If it became commonplace uh, to go off on a, on a journey uh, to some nearby star and come back again and you find yourself... Uh, uh, many years, uh, having aged many years less than the people you left behind, that is that your 
uh, stay-at-home neighbours might be many years uh, older than, than you for the same journey. If that became commonplace, then, of course, we would have to think about time very differently. I don't know, though. I mean, just as a mentality, as a, as a way of being in the world, uh, it, it seems like a liberating way to think about the universe and being in, in an age when I think time feels like a bully and a tyrant to many people in their ordinary lives. Well, it's true that we all go dashing around uh, looking at the clock and, uh, and it's <laughs> very stressful and that's the nature of, of modern life. Um, I, wh- whether relativity offers that liberation, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I, I suppose the most important thing uh, that, that I would say about the nature of time, the, the, the real take-home message from the whole of the theory of relativity is that time is not some sort of, you know, God-given entity that's just there. Uh, it, it is something like matter which can be manipulated and it's, it can be changed. And even in the lab, we can stretch and shrink mm-hmm. time. Now, we can't sh- stretch and shrink our personal time. That is to say, we can't uh, extend right. our life spans by manipulating time in some way, uh, not in our own frame of reference. I can take a trip on a rocket ship and come back to Earth in the year 3000, uh, you know, having aged only one year. In principle, that can be done uh, so that we can sort of leap into the future. But in my own frame of reference, I can't extend my life in that way. From a religious perspective, there's something intriguing, though, in how these ideas of physics might seem to echo spiritual notions that you can find in Eastern and Western religious thought. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, you know, been, uh, and, and in Australia, in, in Australia, where, where you're speaking, you and I are speaking from Australia, there's the notion of dream time. Um, it, 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 there do seem to be echoes of that, of a, of a sense of time as larger and malleable and mutable and not captive to human reality. It, it, it's true that uh, the Australian Aboriginal concept of the dreaming uh, reflects the perception of time of uh, many ancient cultures, uh, the notion that, in a way, there are two times. There's right. the one that we live our lives by on a minute-by-minute basis. Uh, but then there's this more abstract notion, which is maybe uh, time is the wrong word. Maybe it's the opposite of time. Maybe it's eternity. Right. Uh, this is a, a, a dualism, I think, that mm-hmm. runs through all cultures, that there is time and that there is eternity. And that some things... Something beyond time. In, in some sense have an existence outside mm-hmm. of time. They are eternal. Uh, and I don't fully understand, uh, I can't really grasp the Aboriginal concept of the dream time, but I think it uh, will come closer to the uh, Christian notion of eternity mm-hmm. uh, than it does to day-to-day temporal sequence. And uh, I've been inspired by the work of Augustine, who lived in the uh, 5th century and wrote extensively about the nature of time. And where I think he was spot on and where it resonates with Einstein has to do with the origin of time, the fact that uh, time uh, may have come into existence uh, with the beginning of the universe. We think now that the universe began with the Big Bang and people are fond of asking what happened before the Big Bang. And that was also a legacy of Einstein also that we could discern that, correct? uh, Einstein gave us the uh, so-called general theory of relativity in 1915 Mm -hmm. in which uh, the notion of the expanding universe Mm -hmm. is based. 
and by extension of that, the universe beginning with a so-called Big right. Bang. Uh, we know this is now 13.7 billion years ago. And uh, then there are two options. One is that the Big Bang was the absolute origin of everything, and the other is that it uh, uh, was part of a, a, a bigger system that might have uh, gone on forever. But if you take the simplest one, that, that there's just one universe that came into existence with this Big Bang, uh, then Einstein's theory of relativity says that this was the origin of time. And so questions like what happened before the Big Bang or what caused right. the Big Bang are simply meaningless because uh, there was no time before the Big Bang. So Stephen Hawking has remarked it's rather like asking what lies north of the North Pole. And the answer is nothing, not because there's some mysterious land of nothingness there, but because there isn't such a place as north of the North Pole. It's just not defined. And in the same way, the origin of the universe in the Big Bang, in the simple model, uh, is like that. It uh, is defined as the beginning of time. There is no time before it. And Augustine uh, was onto this already in the 5th century uh, because he was addressing the question that uh, all small children like to ask, uh, which is, uh, what was God doing before he created right, the universe? if God created the world, and, uh, who created God? <laughs> uh, and, and that whole mm -hmm. sequence of, yes. Uh, and so... Uh, Augustine uh, said that the world was created with time and not in time. So he placed God outside of time altogether, a timeless, eternal right. being. So we're back to eternity. Uh, whereas the universe uh, is temporal. And the coming into being of the universe, and he didn't know about the Big Bang, but <clears throat> never mind, the, uh, we might call it the creation of the universe, um, at some time in the past represented the origin of time. And so the notion that time does not have to exist but can come into existence along with matter and space uh, places it firmly in the domain of the physical. It's a physical thing. Time is a physical thing. And that uh, really took Einstein to, uh, to emphasize that point. Once you see that time can be manipulated, stretched and shrunk and so on, just like matter can be, be manipulated, it becomes part and parcel of the same thing. And so the origin of the universe is the origin of the whole lot. It's the matter, the space, and the time. Well, so I, I want to talk about, I, I'd like to, let's talk about God. Um, before we leave that idea, I mean, what is the answer to the question? Is the answer to the question, if God created the world, who created God, that, that if God is beyond time and before time, that we simply, we who live in time, simply can't comprehend the answer to that question? There are two uh, arguments of this nature. Uh, one is, uh, theologians often call it the cosmological argument. It's essentially a causal argument. It's the one you just stated that um, what caused the universe to come into being at the beginning? Uh, well, if that was God, then people worry about, well, what caused God? <laughs> um, the, the other is the explanatory argument. It doesn't actually have to be a causal chain in the sense of before and after. It can simply be well, how do we explain this or that phenomenon in the world? Well, you know, in terms of something else, in terms of something else, and ultimately we get down to the laws of physics. And then you can say, well, what explains the laws of physics? Where did they come from? And then you, you might say, well, uh, God uh, created them, but maybe in some timeless sense, you know, not mm -hmm. creation in the temporal sense. Uh, but it, it, they're explained by some sort of uh, mind that's underneath it. And then you get into the problem, well, where did that mind come from? So it's often called the Tower of Turtles problem <laughs> from the famous story about the lecture uh, being given by Bertrand Russell, people attribute it to, and a woman stands up saying, well, uh, you may be very clever, but I know how 
the universe is put together and uh, Russell replied, well, uh, pray tell us. And she said, well, the earth is standing on the back of an elephant, which is standing on the back of a turtle. And so he said, well, what is the turtle standing on? And she said, oh, you can't trick me. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> and so it's this problem of the infinite regress. Right. Now, uh, theologians, of course, have been well aware of this for centuries. Uh, and they've uh, sought to uh, explain this in terms of what they call a necessary being. That is, they say that uh, to stop this uh, Tower of Turtles, to arrive at some, <laughs> as it were, levitating super turtle that will hold right. all this up, uh, this would be a being uh, who... Uh, would be necessary in the, the sense that this being. being's non-existence mm -hmm. would be logically impossible. Right. Uh, and uh, so, in other words, they have tried to argue that although the universe needs an explanation, God does not. Now, not everybody is satisfied that this is a, a coherent concept, that you can have a necessary being responsible for a non-necessary, is often called contingent, system like the no. universe can a necessary being mm -hmm. create a contingent universe and philosophers have sort of tied themselves in knots trying to uh, square that particular circle i'm not completely convinced that it is a coherent uh, uh, right I, I wanted to ask you about that because you do write and speak about the mind of god you use that phrase as a physicist as an astrobiologist and um it seems to me also that that there's some inheritance in that phrase f from Einstein. I'd like to know, and, and also that you don't get bogged down necessarily where our culture gets bogged down in thinking about it. I mean, that it, you, for you, it's not necessarily so important to work out the, or, the question of origins. So talk to me about what that phrase, the mind of God, means to you, and also how Einstein's discoveries and his thought might... Um, have played some part in how you can think about that in the 21st century. The the, the phrase, the mind of God, uh, I think goes back to Isaiah, who can know the mind of mm. God. Uh, but it, it was relevant to the early scientists like Galileo and Newton. Uh, these uh, people were all religious in their own way, um, sometimes not conventionally, uh, certainly in Newton's case uh, that was so. Uh, but they all believed that in doing their science, they were uncovering God's handiwork in the world. You have to understand how science emerged in uh, Western culture, because it, it is uh, largely a Western uh, creation, although it applies now, of course, everywhere. Uh, but it came out of uh, Western Europe under the twin influences of uh, Greek philosophy, uh, which uh, taught that human beings can come to understand their world through rational reasoning, because at first sight, when you look at the world, it just seems so bewilderingly, bewilderingly complex that we would have no hope at all of understanding what's going on. Uh, but the Greeks said, well, if you're methodical and rational and set up you know, logic and uh, reasoning, uh, we can know what's going on in the world. Uh, and then the second tradition was uh, began with Judaism, uh, the notion of a created world order, uh, that... Um, there is a supreme lawgiver who brought the universe into existence at a finite time in the past uh, and orders the universe according to a rational plan. Uh, and, and Judaism is a historical religion, the first religion that had linear time. Uh, as we discussed earlier, all other cultures have cyclic time. But Judaism decisively broke with that. Uh, and uh, there's a historical sequence. There's a creation and, uh, and a fall. And, uh, and you there's know, God uh, acting uh, in history. Eventually an incarnation and mm -hmm. a, you know, in, when it's taken over by Christianity. Right. 
so both Christianity and Islam adopted this linear time and a created world order and a supreme lawgiver, not a committee. So in many religions, say Hinduism, mm-hmm. there's a whole, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that nature is at the mercy of uh, a large the number pantheon, of uh, yes. competing deities mm-hmm. and... Uh, Uh, or there's, uh, you know, in China, the yin and the yang, counterbalancing influences right. and so on. That's not the way it is in these monotheistic religions. It's a, a rational, absolute, imposed world order. So the, the scientists had that tradition. They said, well, there's a, an order in nature, but it's hidden from us. We don't see it in daily life. Uh, we have to use arcane procedures of experiment and mathematics to uncover this, what I like to call, um, mathematical code, which underpins the nature. We now call that the laws of physics, but people didn't know there were were those laws. They assumed that that nature was law-like in some way, uh, imposed by God. Um, But this notion that human beings could come to understand it, could read the mind of God uh, because uh, of the application of human reasoning and human inquiry was a, a tremendous thing. And the birth of science can be identified with this step. And so that's how uh, the notion of uh, glimpsing the mind of God could be understood. And uh, don't forget that, um, according to Christianity, uh, human beings are created in God's image, and they interpreted that to mean that they share, albeit in some diminished way, God's rationality. So if God has a rational plan for the universe, human beings can discern that plan, or glimpse it at least. And uh, I use the term the mind of God in uh, one of my books, Uh, because I was, um, first of all, it's about those sorts of things, but also Stephen Hawking in the closing passage of his famous book, A Brief History of Time, uh, had said uh, that you know, if right. we can achieve these results in physics, we should uh, be able to glimpse the mind of God. So uh, it was a useful phrase, I think, to, uh, to use. In that, in, I, I do hear echoes of Einstein also in that, in that kind of language, um, He often said he, what he, what drove him was wanting to know if God could have created the world any differently. I mean, here's something he said in 1955 to, in an interview, I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. Now, he did not believe in a personal God in in the kind of Judea, Jewish, Christian Uh, way, but explain to us, uh, you know, as a physicist, what Einstein meant when he used language like that. Uh, Einstein was fond of using the word God, yeah. and uh, there are many famous quotations. The other that uh, you haven't mentioned is, uh, God does not That's play right. nice with the yes. universe. This is his antipathy to uh, quantum mm-hmm. physics and its indeterminism. Uh, sometimes he was really using God as a, just a sort of façon de parler, a convenient uh, metaphor. Uh, but he did have, uh, I think, a, a genuine theological position. He did not believe in a personal God. He made that very clear. Uh, but he did believe in a rational world order. Uh, and he expressed what he sometimes called a cosmic religious feeling, a sense mm-hmm. of awe, uh, a sense of admiration at the intellectual ingenuity of the universe, not just its majesty, its grandness, its... Uh, vast size, but it's uh, extraordinary subtlety and beauty and mathematical elegance, something that uh, people who are not physicists find it very hard to grasp. But to a professional physicist, this notion of a underlying mathematical beauty uh, is uh, part and parcel of the subject. Uh, and so I think uh, Einstein uh, saw it in that way. Uh, his quotation about 
he wanted to know whether God had any choice in the nature of the uh, the world he created comes right back to what we were talking about, the notion of a necessary right. being, uh, the notion of a contingent world. Uh, the question is this, could the universe have been otherwise? Uh, does it have to be as it is? Uh, the problem there is that if the universe could have been otherwise, uh, we want to know why is it as it is? So if you take the laws of physics, take, for example... Uh, the inverse square law of gravitation, the sort of thing you learned at high school, you can say, well, why isn't it an inverse cube law? You know, couldn't it be something else? Uh, and so the question is, uh, could the laws be different? And if they could be different, well, who chose the laws we've got? <laughs> uh, and if that was God, God decided, I'll make this world rather than that world. Well, then you you th ask yourself, well, why did God choose that? And if God is a necessary being, uh, then surely God should necessarily create a world of this sort. Uh, but then you can argue, well, why do we need God at all? And so those were the sorts of things that were going around in Einstein's mind, um, whether it could be different. And I think he hoped that at the end of the day, we would discover that the world had to be as it is. That is, it was uh, that it is logically uh, and mathematically mm. Unique. That there was only one set of equations or some grand equation or... or some final unifying mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. theory, that's right, which he searched mm -hmm. for, unified field theory, uh, in which when you looked at the equations, you would see, well, uh, they have to be like that. They couldn't be any different. And uh, many people still believe that. Many of my professional colleagues, particularly those who work in what is known as string theory or M theory, uh, hold out that hope. Uh, that when they finally get the theory together, there will be a unique theory that it couldn't have been different. There will be no free parameters, as we say, to be able to adjust things. Uh, that's it. It's got to be like that. Uh, and so that the world will exist in the form it does of necessity. Uh, and that will be the end of the, the story. <laughs> uh, I think that's actually wrong um, uh, for reasons that we don't have time to get into, uh, so that there are, there are other people who uh, feel that, uh, that the world could have been different in an infinite variety of ways. And there are some people who think that there are an infinite variety of worlds coexisting, uh, many, many universes, uh, in, infinity of universes, coexisting, uh, each uh, realizing or instantiating all those possibilities so that everything exists. And you also raise the kind of religious theological questions that, that for you still flow out of these great discoveries of Einstein and of, of physics as we know them now. Um, you know, burning questions that remain. Uh, maybe we don't need God for, for the laws of physics to do their job, but where do the laws of physics come from? Why these laws rather than others? And and then here's a here's, here's some language of yours. Why a set of laws that drive the searing, featureless gases coughed out of the Big Bang toward life and consciousness and intelligence and cultural activities such as religion, art, mathematics, and science? I mean, are those questions that you can ask now, this way down the road, did, did Einstein consider questions like that to be also um, irrelevant? He, he thought that they would not exist anymore. Uh, for me, the crucial thing is that the, the, the universe is not only uh, beautiful and harmonious and ingeniously put together, mm -hmm. uh, it is also fit for life. And uh, physicists have traditionally ignored life. It's too hard to think about. Um, more and more, though, I think we have to recognize that if the laws of physics hadn't been pretty close to what they are, there would be no life. There would be no observers. Now, some scientists just shrug and say, 
well, so what? You know, if it had been different, we wouldn't be here to worry about it. Um, but I think that's unsatisfactory. And the reason I think it's unsatisfactory is because uh, the universe has not only given rise to life, it's not only given rise to mind, it's given rise to thinking beings who can comprehend the universe mm -hmm. uh, through science and mathematics. We can, uh, so to speak, glimpse the mind of God, as we've been discussing. Um, and I think that this uh, suggests, to me anyway, that, uh, that, that life and mind are not just... Uh, trivial uh, extras. They're not just an embellishment on the grand scheme of things. They're a fundamental part of the nature of the universe. And so, uh, therefore, that naturally leads me to wonder, why is it that the laws of physics and the initial conditions of the universe uh, favoured the emergence of life against all the odds? When you look at, um, if you imagine, playing the role of God and having some sort of uh, machine in front of you with a whole lot of knobs and you can twiddle the knobs and change things. Twiddle one knob, make the electron a bit heavier. Twiddle another knob and make the strong nuclear force <laughs> right, a bit right. stronger. You, you soon discover that you have to fine-tune those settings to extraordinary precision in order for there to be life. And the question is, what are we to make of that? Is that um, uh, just a lucky accident? Now, if the people who think there's only one universe are right. If they think there's only one possibility, uh, then uh, that would just be an extraordinary coincidence that that one possibility, which was logically consistent, uh, also fulfilled all the conditions necessary for life and consciousness to emerge. And I think that's too much of a stretch. Uh, the uh, second position is, well, God did it. You know, there was a, a di divine uh, creator who sort of figured out the settings of the knobs uh, and press the go button and bang, there was a universe with those settings and, and here we are talking about it. And the third position, which is the most popular one among my colleagues, is that, uh, that all possible settings of the knobs um, are realized somewhere, that there are an infinite number of universes and uh, only in those where by accident the settings come out just right will there be beings who will emerge and observe those universes. Right. So the ones which are hostile to life obviously go unseen because there is no life in them. So it becomes an observer selection effect. And so these uh, three sets of ideas are, uh, you know, being um, much discussed in physics conferences and in books. And I'm currently writing a book about all these, uh, these different ideas. How do you think Einstein would be reacting to the discussion that's taking place now? These alternatives. Uh, I think Einstein would have had a profound problem uh, with the way quantum mechanics enters into right. this uh, entire discussion. Because um, let me first make a, a what seems a rather obvious statement. Uh, if we think that the universe came into existence uh, with a big bang as a natural rather than a supernatural process, so if it was a natural process, then by definition a natural process. Uh, if it can happen once, it can happen any number of times. And so one is led just on general grounds to think there's not just one universe, but many. But the difficulty for Einstein would have been uh, that when you just take his equations from the general theory of relativity and run the great cosmic movie backward, you go back to this origin of time in the Big Bang, uh, then his theory just stops. It, uh, we say that there's a singularity in the theory. It's technically some quantities become infinite. Uh, and it's simply not possible to push the theory back before that. Uh, but over the last uh, 30 years or so, 
uh, particularly from the work of uh, James Hartle at the University of California at Santa Barbara and Stephen Hawking in Cambridge. Um, quantum physics has been applied to cosmology, and quantum physics uh, permits an element of spontaneity or uncertainty or indeterminism that allows the universe to come into existence entirely in accordance with uh, the laws of quantum physics. There's no uh, miracle or supernatural act um, to uh, uh, bubble up, as we say, out of the quantum vacuum. Um, and again, if it allows it to happen once, it looks like it can happen any number of times. So the fashionable way of looking at the universe now is uh, in terms of this multiverse uh, and in something called eternal inflation, that there are regions of space which are expanding stupendously rapidly all the time, and that out of these uh, regions uh, there are bubbles, which uh, each of which represents a universe, and our universe is one bubble among uh, an infinite number of bubbles. And th these, uh, the origin of these bubbles is a quantum process. Uh, and I think Einstein would have felt very unhappy about that uh, because he, he hated quantum mechanics. He wanted uh, a, a universe which was strictly deterministic, even at the microscopic level. He didn't like the idea that there was any sort of sloppiness or ambiguity right. or, or indeterminism in nature. I did have a I did have a good exchange also with Freeman Dyson about that and about about the and about Einstein's great quote that God does not play dice. I mean how he was reacting to to the messiness of the, of quantum discoveries. I, you know, I want to ask you um, when you speak about the incredible fine tuning and the beauty, uh, the 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 wonder and and Einstein used words like that too, the radiance of the universe. Um, as you say, there are many ways to interpret that and science itself presents many ways. But one could, e even without invoking the idea of a personal God, one could could land with ideas. You, you use the word mind. Um, one could land with words like design, that there seems to be an amazing design to it. Now, that's the kind of word that is that is causing great controversy as biologists discuss it. And I think you make some interesting distinctions about the direction physics has taken as opposed to the direction biology has taken. Um, say something about that. When uh, William Paley, the uh, famous uh, theologian in uh, Britain, uh, came up with his uh, watch argument uh, for the existence of God. Uh, let me just uh, remind you of that, that he said, imagine that you're strolling uh, across a, a heath and you come across a watch, and even if you didn't know watch, what the watch was, if you'd never seen one before, you could open it up and look and see how all the different components fitted together in such a felicitous manner, uh, and the whole thing uh, would work as a coherent uh, entity and that you would be persuaded that it must have been designed for a purpose by a designer. Right. And purpose uh, is a word you use said, also in your writing. Yeah. Uh, it, well, well, this is, but yes. But saying something. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't get to catch that. No, just keep going. I'll, we'll come back to it. Okay. Uh, and so he then uh, went on to say, if we consider the contrivances of nature... Uh, then uh, we're persuaded even more that there must be uh, a designer and that uh, there's a purpose in these things. And he had two sets of examples. One was drawn from biology. Consider the uh, living organisms, how extraordinarily well adapted they are to their environments and something like the the eye, uh, you know, seems to be so intricate and um, 
and all the components seem to be uh, needed together. How could all this uh, come uh, to exist without a designer, uh, without intelligent design? And then he considered also the astronomical system and the universe as a whole, and it seemed to work so well uh, that surely there must be a designer to that. Now, of course, it's a, a well-known matter of history that uh, Darwin's theory of evolution um, demolished the first of these, yeah. that uh, uh, everybody agrees that living organisms are distinctive because they look as if they have been designed. That's what singles a living organism from, from a non-living complex system. Uh, the living organism looks like it's been designed by an intelligent designer. And Darwin's theory of evolution can uh, explain that. It mimics the appearance of design. Uh, and it does it through the well-known process of uh, variation and, and selection. Uh, so um, Paley's argument collapsed on the biological front. Now, the astronomical one uh, is immune from that because, of course, uh, the universe isn't uh, part of uh, uh, you know, a system that's uh, fighting it out red in tooth and claw. There's no law of the jungle for universes. Um, it's, it's a very different uh, type of setup that we're talking about there. Uh, and so then the question is, if we come to, uh, as we were talking about earlier, the laws of physics seem almost as if they've been designed with life in mind. It looks like right. a fix. Uh, how do we explain that? We can't explain it from uh, Darwinian processes, so uh, that, that uh, doesn't work. So it either remains as a mystery, or we could invoke an intelligent uh, designer, uh, but this is not a designer, you know, I have to say, uh, <coughs> who is tinkering with the universe on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Um, I uh, am a very strong opponent of the so-called intelligent uh, design movement that uh, seems to have uh, bubbled up in American politics uh, with uh, God as a cosmic magician uh, who pops up from time to time and tinkers with uh, atoms and molecules. I think this is a horrible notion of, of God and it's um, not an explanation at all to just say that there was some magic uh, that brought these things into being. It doesn't explain it at all. Uh, so I want to be absolutely clear about that. <clears throat> but if we're talking about, in some timeless sense, um, uh, about the laws of physics. We're not talking about a miracle worker who uh, is uh, popping up uh, through history to uh, fix things up. We're talking about laws which have exist for, existed for all eternity. Uh, these laws are outside of space and time. And then the question is, um, how do we explain those laws and the fact that they look like a fix? And it seems to me that um, uh, the two possibilities we have is that it is a fix, that is, that in some sense, uh, mind is involved. And it is, isn't necessarily something as simple as there was a pre-existing God who was very wise and could figure out all of the uh, settings on the great cosmic machine uh, right. and uh, picked a particular one. It, you know, it could be something much more subtle than that, but, <clears throat> but something that uh, involves mind in some way. And the other is this multiverse, the idea that uh, there are all possible universes, all possible settings, and what looks like a designed universe is just an accident, uh, and it's an accident we witness simply because if that accident hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. So that's the biological selection effect, sometimes called the anthropic principle. And, then, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, really these things... Uh, uh, at the end of the day, boil down largely to a matter of personal choice mm -hmm. because we can't really test either, right. <laughs> uh, certainly not in our current state of knowledge. You can't prove either. Um, 
I mean, then, and, and then someone like John Polkinghorne, uh, a physicist and theologian, will say that that some of what is being learned in quantum physics and chaos theory that these things su- could suggest um, the possibility of of an involved creator, um, even given the laws of physics. I mean. Yes, uh, there is uh, has always been this problem mm-hmm. uh, for physicists about uh, uh, an active God. If God uh, does anything, uh, God has to uh, be at work in the world. Uh, and now, uh, if we go back to the t- sort of universe that uh, Newton had and the, the one that Einstein supported, the notion of a deterministic universe, a mm-hmm. clockwork universe, uh, then uh, this becomes a real problem because uh, if God is to change anything, then God has to uh, overrule God's own uh, laws. Uh, and that doesn't look uh, a, a very edifying prospect theologically or scientifically. It's horrible on both counts. Uh, but when one gets to uh, an indeterministic universe, if you allow quantum physics, mm-hmm. uh, then there is some sort of lassitude in the operation of these laws. There are interstices uh, in, uh, having to do with quantum uncertainty into which, if you want, you could insert uh, the hand of God. So, uh, for example, if we think of a typical quantum process as being like the roll of a die, you know, God does not play dice, Einstein <laughs> said. Well, it seems that, you know, God does right, play dice. Right. Uh, then the question is, you know, if God could load the quantum dice, uh, w- w- uh, this is one way of influencing what happens in the world, working through these, uh, these quantum uncertainties. Now, some people uh, certainly have pushed that idea. Um, uh, uh, John Polkinghorne is one who's spoken about it. Bob Russell for the Center of Theology and Natural Sciences in Berkeley uh, likes that point of view of God uh, not, uh, in any sense, um, usurping the laws of physics, but working within the inherent lassitude Mm -hmm. that quantum physics provides. And it's a possible way of God to gain causal purchase in the world without uh, changing any of the laws that we know. There's a, you quote in your book about time Daniel Greenberger saying, Einstein said that if quantum physics was right, then the world, is, then the world was crazy. Well, Einstein was right. The world is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the, well, there are many uh, famous quotes about, uh, about quantum physics because it's such a weird subject. Uh, the one I uh, prefer is uh, Niels Bohr, who, who said that anyone... Uh, who is not uh, shocked by quantum mechanics, hasn't understood it. Uh, Richard Feynman, I think, once said also, anyone who thinks they understand quantum mechanics hasn't understood it. <laughs> right. it's a sort of Yogi Bear type comment. Do you think <laughs> Einstein himself, from what you know of him and understand of his science, and also this idea of, of God, the way he used that language, the way he used it, do you think he would be convinced or changed? Can you imagine that he would be convinced or changed by what you're discovering now? You think if Einstein were yeah. alive today and could yeah. see science, uh, I, I'm sure that a man of that intellect would eventually be persuaded, for example, that we have to take quantum mechanics seriously, we have to take indeterminism seriously, uh, that uh, his opposition to quantum mechanics uh, has something of the stubborn old man about it. And, of course, it's well known uh, that the older you get, the more fixed uh, ideas you have, and that's why physics uh, is very much a young person subject. <laughs> right. And I think, uh, though, uh, he uh, could not have um, uh, really stood out against the overwhelming evidence. Uh, quantum mechanics is just such a part of, uh, of daily science now. It infuses almost everything. 
Uh, and uh, you have to go through extraordinary mental gymnastics to cling to a notion that nevertheless, in spite of all this, there's still some deterministic uh, substructure to it. So I think he would have come around in the end. He, he was, after all, half persuaded. He started out by thinking quantum mechanics was simply wrong, and he devised a number of thought experiments in the 1920s and early 30s that seemed to, uh, to him to demonstrate inconsistencies in quantum predictions. In the end, he realized that uh, that was not going to happen, uh, that it was a consistent theory, but he just thought it may be incomplete, uh, that there was more to the universe than quantum mechanics gave right. us. And so, you know, that, that was a halfway step to accepting <laughs> the reality of quantum mechanics. I think as we close, I'd like to come back to this idea of eternity. We touched on that a bit when we were talking about time, which was such an important subject for Einstein. Um, and this this idea that it, that is in many cultures and many religious traditions of a sort of a distinction between the temporal and the eternal. And I, I'd like to read you a passage from a letter that I found that Einstein wrote when he when he was a bit older and just, just see how you respond to it as a physicist. He wrote this actually, actually to the Queen of Belgium and who has, was suffering a great grief. And he said and he said to her, and yet as always, the springtime sun brings forth new life, and we may rejoice because of this new life and contribute to its unfolding. And Mozart remains as beautiful and tender as he always was and always will be. There is, after all, something eternal that lies beyond the hand of fate and of all human delusions. And such eternals lie closer to an older person than to a younger one, oscillating between fear and hope. For us, there remains the privilege of experiencing beauty and truth in their purest forms. I don't think this is an Einstein many of us know when we just think of his scientific legacy. Uh, those are beautiful words, and I was quite unaware of mm. them. Uh, very poetic. Uh, and I can see uh, where they're coming from because, as we discussed Earlier, uh, Einstein was the person to establish this notion of uh, what is sometimes called block time, that the past, present and future are just personal decompositions of time and that uh, the, 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 the universe of past, present and future in some sense has an eternal existence. And so even though individuals may come and go, uh, their lives which are in the past uh, for their descendants nevertheless still have uh, some existence within this block time. Nothing takes that away. Mm. Uh, you may have your three score years and ten uh, measured by a date after your death. Uh, you are no more. And yet uh, within this grander sweep of the timescape, uh, nothing has changed. Your life is still there in its entirety. It's, it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? I mean, it, it opens up... Um our imagination about what it means to be human and to be and and the universe even our place in it. Uh, I I think that physics impacts upon our view of the universe and our place within it in so many ways in the nature of time, in the nature of reality through quantum physics, and as we've discussed, the uh, the fact that the universe is fit for life and we're a component in this bio-friendly universe that has such ingenious laws that can enable life to come into existence. And it puts our own position on this planet into a very different context. It cuts both ways, because on the one hand, we can see that we are not at the center of the universe. We're not the pinnacle of creation. 
that we are maybe a small part, maybe only one among myriad living systems throughout the universe. And yet, nevertheless, we have emerged uh, from a universe that is uh, intrinsically biofriendly. And uh, we can truly feel part of nature in a cosmic sense, not just in a local sense, but I think in a genuinely cosmic sense. Mm. And for me, the beauty of science, what has opened up for me during my career, is being able to see that uh, what we might call cosmic connection uh, and that we can can now look at ourselves uh, in that much broader context. And I think that that's deeply inspiring, whatever one's religious uh, convictions, and even if you have no religious uh, convictions, I think this uh, uplifting image of the, the universe and our place within it that is painted by modern science is one that should be celebrated. I often um, say that uh, if I uh, talk to someone like Stephen Weinberg, who's... Um, oh. Uh, a professed atheist and quite uh, He's militantly. He's the one who said the more uh, so. we learn, the more pointless it seems. Uh, that's mm-hmm. right. And yet, nevertheless, he will share in the uh, the awe, the wonder, the majesty, the beauty of the universe in this uh, cosmic connection that I've been talking about. He sees the same facts as I do and is equally inspired, uh, can't bring himself to believe that there's any point behind it all. <laughs> and that that's uh, where he and I would part company. We'd agree on all of the science, but to me it overwhelmingly suggests that the universe is about something, that there is a point to it, uh, and that we're part of whatever point that is. Uh, And that's my personal Mm. view of the universe from a lifetime spent in science. I think those are probably your your last words. I, I wonder if there's anything I haven't asked you about, about Einstein, or if you would want to say anything in closing about how how Einstein's discoveries contributed to your ability to come to these conclusions uh, in our age. I think we've had a fair crack okay. uh, at the uh, Einstein and the physics part. What we haven't uh, discussed, uh, and there's no time to do that now, and you may not want to do it, is is his humanitarian and political work. Uh, You know, he was a pacifist, a Zionist, uh, uh, and was involved, of course, in the bomb project. You know, these are all things that make Einstein so fascinating. I do. We are Uh, But it's probably outside the scope of your... Well, uh, I think it's... We're going to do two programs, and I imagine that the second one would zero in on those. We have some ideas about people to interview, but does anyone come to mind for you, voices who you think would be critical for us to get on that subject? Uh, A part of the problem is that most of the people are dead. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but uh, John Stachel at uh, Boston University is an Einstein historian and has a lot of the original uh, papers and things. Uh, And I think you'd find he would be a very good person to contact. Uh, There are, uh, in Israel, there are Einstein uh, papers, I think, at the Weizmann Institute. Yes. uh, Not not exactly sure where. and, uh, of course, there are very few people still around who encountered Einstein. Mm-hmm. Freeman Dyson was one of them, of yes, course. Yes, and that was wonderful. Already. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, there have been a number of biographies. Uh, uh, of course, the best one by Rudolf Peiss, uh, you know, he's um, Abraham Peiss. He's dead, mm-hmm. uh, too. Uh, but I think that there are perhaps one or two more recent ones that have come out for the centenary of the Annus Mirabilis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may, uh, you know, provide information about these sort of political and uh, and social things. All right. Um, 
You'd, you'd expect there to be someone in Princeton who would uh, somehow keep the flame well, alive, but I haven't found anybody myself that uh, is any a good. A couple of our producers are going to Princeton to look through the archives. And, uh, I mean, we do have some ideas, and I will be... We'll be sending you the program and, and letting you know what we come up with. But I do very much well, want to get you. into that aspect. Thank, I, you. thank you so much for making the time to do this. And again, I'm sorry Well, it's, for a, the it's delay. a pleasure, and I'm sorry it's taken us so long to I know. Well, finally we connect. I just, <laughs> no, it, this was terrific. I'm just, I'm just insanely busy, yes. and uh, it, uh, you know, it's, it's always difficult with this time difference. But yeah. anyway, we've, we've cranked yes. it. And uh, uh, let's leave it there. I've got uh, just 10 minutes to do another quick recording for another okay. project in Tower. Right. Uh, and uh, so I'll look forward to hearing from you in you due will. course. Thank you so much again. Okay. Bye-bye. Righto. Bye.